Welcome to the Table Leadership Podcast, where everyone is invited to pull up a seat, and all leaders have a voice to contribute to the conversation. We're glad you could join us today. And now, your host, Sian Edgerton. I love it. And that's what I said. You know what? If the Lord brings us back to the East Coast, then that's got to be why. Because <laughs> he knows we miss our people. So Vernon, for everyone else that doesn't have the honor of knowing you as well as I do, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Just I know you're you're a pastor. You're on a couple different boards. You're an author. You've got an amazing family. Love your wife. Love your kids. So just tell us a little bit about you and who you are. Absolutely. So I'm Vernon Gordon and uh, do have a beautiful wife that I've known since I was 16 years old. So we were class couple of our graduating class, still going strong. Um, We have two children, Madison and Jackson, who are five and three. And the thing that has given me the most anxiety in the world right now is kindergarten. Another story (laughs) for another day. Um, We uh, have the privilege of pastoring church we planted four years ago called the Life Church in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, it's been just an amazing journey seeing God's hand on the church. Um, and as mentioned, just have the opportunity of doing some really cool things um, beyond our church. I serve as the team leader for Emerging Leaders for the um, international uh, network called Lot Carry Global Missions Network. I also have the privilege of being on the board of visitors at Duke Divinity School and offering some, uh, really stealing more ideas, but get to contribute a few every now and then. And, uh, and then I uh, just wrote a first book, and it's called In the Beginning, A Head Start to a Strong Finish. And it's all about foundations to our faith. So I'm just really excited, and uh, it's been a great journey, and uh, looking forward to the conversation at the table. That's awesome. And where can people pick up your book? Amazon uh, is the best place to pick it up, um, unless you want to come all the way to the East Coast and grab it from me personally. <laughs> but, uh, but if you go to Amazon, just type in Vernon Gordon or In the Beginning, It'll come right up and uh, and definitely will love your support. Awesome. Yes, I know Vernon. I know his heart. I know his ministry. I know his family. I know his leadership. And so I would absolutely uh, just put that stamp of go get you a copy on anything that he does. And so, all right, let's get started. First yep. thing that I have to ask you that I ask everybody is if we were not at a virtual table, okay. if we were actually gathering leaders together around a live table, which I know you do, I know you're huge into investing in your team and, and gathering your people. So if we were doing that live, what would you be serving? What is either your favorite dish or the one thing that you can make better than anybody else? What would you be feeding us if we were together right now? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to give you two answers. I know that may not be the rules, but That's all right. breaker, I believe in asking for forgiveness instead of asking for permission. So here we go. <laughs> the first thing I'm bringing, which I think I do uh, extremely well, is jambalaya. I'm bringing oh. jambalaya, and it's going to be beyond spicy, and you're going to need a bottle of water next to you because yes. uh, I'm throwing as much crushed red pepper in there as I can. So um, jambalaya with sausage and shrimp. Got to uh-huh. be um, uh-huh. And then if I am uh, coming to the table and we're all friends, I am the king of experimenting on my friends. And the thing that I'm experimenting with right now is grilling. Um, and I'm not great at it. So right now I'm trying to figure out how to grill salmon. So I will bring grilled salmon that may not be good. to the table. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. As long as you bring a backup pot of your jambalaya. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm go with it. I, I was telling someone else recently how, you know, the one thing that I am really missing and, you know, I love the West Coast. I'm so glad that God brought us out here, but soul food. 
I'm saying? I'm saying? You got I... it. We got one right down the street from our church. You know, whatever the oh. Lord. <laughs> See, he's he's trying. He's he's tugging at my heartstrings. At least at my <laughs> at least tugging at my stomach right now, man. What I wouldn't give for some good jambalaya or shrimp and grits. Oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. And soul food will mess you up. I mean, this place down the street from our church, uh, they're like catfish dinners and everything, and it's literally walking distance. And so, I think our staff has gained probably seventy two collective pounds. <laughs> I'm over the summer because it's just been ridiculous. But <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well, now that I'm good and hungry and craving jambalaya, <laughs> let's uh, let's get down to the the real purpose of our conversation today. And so uh, we talked about you and I discussed having you share a little bit. We know what you would bring to the table food wise, but uh, what you really bring to the table leadership wise is valuing and investing in relationships as resources. So mm-hmm. tell me how would you kind of talk about and define that just in the way that it has been meaningful to you? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, definitely relationships, I think, are the key, I mean, just essential or pillar of quality leadership. And so um, from the language or the thought process of bringing it to the table, I think one of the things that I've grown to really, really enjoy is leveraging and empowering leaders. Um, Sometimes, I mean, so much so that I am, and I think this should be all leaders to some degree, but I'm so comfortable with failure. I'm so comfortable with people trying and not getting it all the way right. Um, And maybe just my experience, but that's so much of the way I learned. I had opportunity to fly. I had opportunity to shoot the ball, even though it didn't always go in. And so I think uh, we have to give uh, more people the opportunity to take a shot and, uh, and then to learn from those seasons. And I think that creates longevity in those relationships because it ultimately creates trust. And then um, just how do we build consistent relationships with people's competencies and passions and leverage those and, and collaborate with those? Um, I am a big advocate for, I'd rather do a few things great than a lot of things average. And, uh, and so I try to really, really find out what are my strengths, outsource my weaknesses. And uh, ultimately that all comes down to building relationships. So if I can ask, back up a little bit to that failure piece, uh, can you share with us a personal example of a failure that you faced that has actually grown your leadership? Wow, that's a great question. So we launched um, in July of 2015, and, um, and the launch was great, and things were happening and things were moving, and uh, we had this idea to start um, another service again. So my background is I was doing youth pastoring. And I was also a campus pastor at VCU. While at VCU, we had seen this beautiful uh, exponential growth of college and campus ministry, like 200 something young people in a service at two o'clock. And then we planted the church and we was like, we need to get that going again. And, um, and it failed. It failed uh, miserably. I mean, we'd be like, where's everybody at and why can't we get people to come? And I think in large part, um, we were a little overzealous. Two things I really learned from that experience or that failure as I chose that language. Number one is um, you have to really make sure you know people's capacity. Um, a lot of times we can see people's passion, but if you don't know their capacity, uh, you'll throw them into something that, that, that'll have them drowning or their head underwater. So I put a lot of people in position who just had a lot going on in their lives personally. And because I hadn't taken the time to authentically and, and intimately invest into asking them what was going on in their world, 
um, they felt obligated to say yes. And, uh, and their capacity wasn't there. And then the other thing was, we just hadn't had a conversation with that community. So when I was doing campus ministry there three years before, um, I knew the community, but college ministry is one of those places where it's cyclical. So everybody was gone. Um, and so the question was, who is this new group of people? And we didn't build any real uh, deep relationships in order to be able to have uh, the community uh, to be able to broaden the message. And so um, those were just great lessons learned um, and didn't work out. We shut it down. We still have a great relationship with the campus and the students there just in another way. Yeah, that's great. So mm-hmm. what are some things to not only embrace those those moments of personal failure and to be able to recover and learn from them, but for a leader, you said you're okay with letting other people fail too, giving them opportunities and knowing that, hey, it might not work out okay, but there's going to be a lesson that can be learned and an investment that can be made. So mm-hmm. what does it take for a leader to be okay? You know, as leaders, we tend to want to sometimes, some of us, hold the reins a little tightly, make sure that things don't get messed up. We're not real good at delegating or letting our people fly. What does it take for a leader to say, yeah, you know what? I want to lead my team in that way. And what's the benefit of it? Absolutely. Well, I think I'll start with the last question, which is what's the benefit? I mean, one is a healthier rhythm of life. When you um, have the ability to not be responsible for everything, um, you can breathe a little bit. You can celebrate a little more. You can have time with your family. I mean, some of the practical elements as well. But I, I also think one of the things that's critical, and if anybody wants to lead through this mechanism, is I think you have to be willing to be able to identify the right people. Um, where, there's, where there's familiarity, there's grace. And so, so much of what I hear about people who say, well, I just can't find people, I can't do this. I think it's about the ability to identify those leaders uh, because uh, if I have a brother, which I do, right, I, I am more inclined to give my brother opportunities and responsibility because of the relationship we have. Um, you got cousins or you got friends that you'll say, you can help me with this. You can help me do this event. A lot of times what I find is we do a, a poor job, and that's a generalization, identifying the amazing gifts and talents right in our general vicinity. And, uh, and, a, and a big thing that I ascribe to with this uh, is a three-part practice called notice, name, and nurture. Notice, name, and nurture. And uh, right now I'm really ha- you know harping on this notice part. Um, what I started to realize was, um, and what I encourage every leader to think about is, how are you noticing leaders? Because if you're only noticing them through a limited scope or vantage point, you'll miss great leaders all the time. I'll give you a great example. I'm a big sports fan, and uh, and and everybody knows that if you're going to coach any team well, uh, and and particularly basketball, Greg Popovich is the great, greatest guy at this, um, you know that you have to be able to notice talent. Well, mm. there's this guy named Danny Green who I think his record just got broken, but at, at one point he was the single record holder for most three-pointers in the postseason. Well, before he started playing for Greg Popovich, he was in the D-League on his way to being out of the league. Greg wow. Popovich noticed he had a niche gift. He said, hey, I just wanted to ask you to do two things for our team. And he went from being somebody who was on his way out of the league to being now an NBA record holder, uh, not because he became good at everything, but it's because somebody noticed what he was really passionate about and good at, um, and he worked within a great system. And so um, I think all leaders have to be a little bit more keen to try to notice those gifts in the people around us. 
Yeah, that's good. And so along with that, one of the other things that you mentioned was competency, being aware of, you talked about that initial failure and that people were maybe positioned just in places that they didn't quite have the capacity to serve in yet. What are ways that we can not only notice the talents and gifts that people are bringing, but also notice that capacity that they currently have, the competencies that they have. How do we determine those things, especially when, if you're working with, uh, you know, younger leaders, there's so much excitement, there's so much passion, and we don't always know how to balance the passion with a realistic analysis of what's my actual capacity in this season. So how do you as a senior leader uh, really notice the competencies and the capacities and maybe even the limitations, and how do you lead people in acknowledging? Acknowledging those things. Absolutely. Risk management um, is the yeah. word I would choose. I'm married to an auditor. So, uh, <laughs> so words like that come to mind. And so uh, in large part, you used the word earlier called delegation. Sometimes I think delegation, um, we, we always make an outcome and not a process. Mm. And so for me, delegation, and, and I want to give credit to where credit is due. Andy Stanley talks a little bit about this. Um, the four levels of delegation. For us, we use delegation as a practice to assess competency with low-risk situations. Uh, I grew up in a small country, black church in Chesapeake, Virginia, that my grandmother started her garage. Let me give you an example. I love it. Preaching when you grow up in a small church is always high risk. It's the first opportunity. It's in front of everybody, and people's lives need to be changed, so don't mess it up. Um, There was no setting by which to be developed, groomed, uh, asked questions, inquiry, um, work with in a private context or in a low uh, exposure context. And so um, while, I, while I think it's important to push people out, I think we have to have layers and process and I think delegation does that. So a lot of what we do is we call it a level one delegation to, uh, to assess someone's capacity. We'll first give them an opportunity to bring us back information. We'll say, hey, at a level one, you know, just give me back some information. And if somebody continues to miss deadlines with that, we know their capacity shouldn't take on more. Um, level two delegation, we t- generally will say something like, hey, we want you to be a part of this project, but you're not leading it. And we want to see how they contribute and how they're proactive and how they take initiative. And then at a level three, we might say, hey, we're going to let you do this event, but it's going to be one event. And it's not going to sink the ship. It's not going to destroy the church. Uh, you're not being named the team leader. You're just being named the project leader for this moment. Uh, and generally, we don't get there if you didn't manage level one and level two well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then when we get to level four, that's like ownership. Hey, you've shown uh, time and time again that you can handle responsibility. You can handle crisis. You can handle opportunity. Um, we just want you to own this and we trust you with it. And uh, we know you'll make mistakes along the way, but we trust that you're, you, you know, you're going to always operate in the best interest of the organization. So for us, that's kind of the process we go through to kind of systematically assess um, and and use delegation as a tool to assess capacity and competency, um, not just as an outcome. That's good. And I love what a biblical model that is too, you know, that just follows that model that we see in the life of Jesus of, hey, come and see, follow me. All right, now I'm going to send you out two by two. Okay, now I'm out of here, y'all. Deuces. Like, this is, this, go build my church, you know? Um, But there's always the grace for the failure. There's always the grace for the mistakes and just the humanity that we bring to the table because, and and here's what I really want to get to, what I hear so much of in what you're saying, a lot of 
of these, these are great organizational principles. These are mm-hmm. phenomenal leadership principles. But what I really hear you saying is how much you value the people. You have to in order to allow for failure and mistakes. You have to value the relationships in order to be able to trust someone with essentially your baby. I mean, when you're the senior leader, whether it's your church, your organization, your nonprofit, your company, whatever, that's your baby and you're trusting someone else with it. And so talk to me a little bit about um, what does it look like when you're not working with family? Mm. What does it look like for you to build relationships in such a way that it's not just um, because that person is a tool to help grow your company, but because you actually are investing in the value that that person has? Talk to me about your kind of journey with that. Great question. So I, I, the starting point I'll say is, and I probably have done a horrible job at this so far, but definitely you hit the nail on the head. I, I am a huge advocate that we we really aren't leading and we really aren't living the life of Jesus well if we don't value relationships around us, um, which means that the first thing it starts with, and, and here was my biggest struggle early on, I couldn't necessarily invest into relationships the way I wanted because I did not have time set aside. Um, time management. So, I mean, at a very practical level, it starts with time. I mean, as a prerequisite, you know, what we're about to say and the question you just asked about what does it look like to engage those conversations and what does it look like? But it starts with creating the time to not rush through those moments and to really be invested and to really be inviting. Um, So I want to make sure I name that um, because that creates the atmosphere by which someone can feel like I'm not just another part of your task list. Uh, but I'm actually someone that you're planting seeds in or willing to learn from um, and and, and do that as well. So, uh, but to your question about what does it look like if you're trying to, you know, have that conversation or what does that look like in practice? I think it starts with, um, you know, for me, taking people into places where they feel comfortable at a very practical level. Uh, I am really big at asking people, invite me into your world. Um, Because what I found is, Whenever I invite people always into my world, they feel like they have to change. So because I'm a pastor, even if I have people who are business minds in my church, they feel like they have to talk different and they feel like they have to, you know, and so I have seen so much value and even grown with my own ability and capacity and competency by going into their world, um, seeing where they thrive. And, and, you know, hearing them say things like KPIs, when if they would have came to the church to meet me, they'd be like, Pastor, we just want to talk about like what Jesus is doing. And I'd be like, no, I want to learn and I want to see where you're strong and where you're passionate and where you are currently flourishing and thriving. And we just want to partner with that, not to your point, not to the gain of just the church, but how can we talk about what God may be doing in your life through what you're already passionate about? So um, that's one thing. I'm really big on environment. And I think start one of the big starting points is, Go to where someone else feels comfortable, where they're thriving, where they're flourishing. See them in their element. And I think that's a great starting point. Um, another, another big practice that I try to make happen is ask a lot of questions. Um, I found that leaders can be really good at talking about themselves way too much. <laughs> and so the question becomes like, what questions are you asking? Are you asking questions that truly lead people not only to development and discovery, but also to ultimately their destiny that, to your point, if it serves the the vision of the organization, awesome. But ultimately, because relationships are what we're looking for, um, we want to be able to champion people into what God is doing in their life, whether that benefits us or not. Um, And then the last, I think, is really vital. And so you have the, the whole being in the environment, 
you have the asking of the questions, but then you have to really make sure that, you know, one, one guy told me one time, whenever you're meeting people and you're trying to add value to their life, mine for values. And so a big question I'm asking for is what, and maybe if I'm not even asking it overtly, what I'm mining for is what do they value? Um, if they're a business person, if they're an entrepreneur, if they are community driven, if they are really, really adamant about stewardship, like just what do you value? And then how can uh, we you know, edify each other and making sure that those values continue to be illuminated in your life? So um, I don't know if that answered your question or not, but. Yeah, that's great. So let me ask you this then with such a value in relationships, what would you say are some of the key relationships that are absolutely vital for you, not only in your own growth, but in your leadership too? You know, you hear some people talk about how you've got those um, above you, you know, the people that you're following, whether it's mentors, board of directors that you report to, whatever. And then you've got the people that you're with kind of at that peer level. And then you've got the people behind you that are following along, whatever language you might use. What are some of the different levels of relationship that are a huge vital part of your life and and why is that what is the purpose or the value that they serve for you oh my god great question so um i don't know if i have any formal language for it but here's what i'll say i have some amazing um challengers in my life people who i've i have given complete permission to say that's a dumb idea um or to say you don't have to unpack that for me. Um, one of the things that an old pastor told me once, he said, the, the larger the church grows, the less honest people will become with you. And so, so it was important for me. Um, you asked about me personally. It was important for me to give permission to a few people in my life. And there's actually four in particular who just know I, I want their brutal honesty at all times. Um, and uh, it doesn't mean I have to take everything that they say, but I never have to question um, if I know they're being honest with me, they, that is their contribution to my life in, in a very intimate way. Um, and, that, and that's reciprocated. Uh, the other thing is I always want to make sure there's some people that are running a little bit faster than me or a little bit ahead of me. Um, and I try to cling to, you know, just seeing how they operate at their pace. And so a couple of people who are like that in my life right now, um, I, you know, I do not name drop with regularity. I, I, I don't got a lot of names to drop. One of my good friends is Travis Green, and um, and I can think I worked hard, and then I'll talk to Travis, and I'm like, yeah, okay, never mind. Uh, his schedule, but the way that he has such demand on his life and never compromises commitment to family eliminates all my excuses, right? And so uh, having people in my life like that, I have another friend of mine who is a senior congressional aide. His name is Esmail Meeks, and seeing the rigors of politics and how he's involved in it, Um, And as an advocate, but uh, being able to see how he manages his life and his time um, as as such a position of influence. Um, So I have about four or five people in my life like that who I just love to just dive into their world, to to, to be on their heels and just kind of see what they're doing and how they're managing their time and uh, family and so forth and so on. And then last one is, of course, um, people who I call them kind of been there, done that, like my wisdom warriors. Um, and, uh, you know, one of them, Dr. John Chandler, uh, people like that. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just, I just, once a quarter, I just need to be like, wherever you are, I'll drive to. So I can just hear and grow and learn. And, um, and, and there are a few of those in my life and they take on different forms. I, you know, I have a guy named Pastor Ricky Grimes who just lights into me as a husband and as a father, you know, and and we actually just moved not too far from him, which has, um, 
emboldened his uh, <laughs> constructive criticism. So um, I'm always looking for where's wisdom. I'm always looking for where some people were outpacing me and I can kind of see, you know, God, if I want to go somewhere there, what does it look like to manage my life in that sphere? And, uh, and then I'm always looking for people who are challengers in my life. And of course, naturally, I'm always looking for people I can bring along for the journey. So sure. people I can invest in. And again, that goes back to that notice, name and nurture. I'll speak to the name a little bit, if that's okay, Sian. Yes. Um, you know, for me, it's really important after you notice competency and passion and, um, and, and, and just excitement in people to name the potential for leadership. Uh, one of the tragedies I think that the church has had particularly um, is that we've allowed a lot of great leaders to slip through our cracks, not because we didn't even notice them, but because we never named to that person what we saw in them. Um, and so to me, naming uh, says to someone, you notice me. And if, you, if I don't know I'm noticed, I will go where I believe I'm being affirmed. Mm. Um, so I think it is so vital that when we do notice potential in people, we say it, you know, and, and so I make it a practice. I try to find a leader once a month at least to just walk up to in the foyer or walk up to at coffee and say, hey, I just want to let you know I saw your interaction over there or the way you engage this. And that's amazing leadership. Like, and I just want to name to you, I think you have some amazing potential to do X or Y or Z. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I don't know if you've ever prayed about this. I don't know if anybody's ever told you this. But uh, I think you have some amazing potential to be a leader in this way. Um, if you're interested, let me know, right? What I've just did for them, talking about relationships as resources, I become a resource of affirmation. And uh, I think we just can never underestimate in our society today how um, valuable that can be, that people yeah. live their lives and nobody ever says, I see more in you. And uh, so I think when we, when we notice something, we have to name it in people so that they can know, okay, you are someone who saw something in me either I didn't see in myself or that I have been wrestling with. And I just wondered, maybe I was just seeing it for myself. Maybe I was crazy, but you were the pivotal point. You were the catalyst to me believing what I always saw. Um, so, um, so I think that's a valuable way to leverage or not even leverage, but to invest into relationships. And, um, and to continue to build upon them. It's so, I'm sitting here taking, I'm jotting notes down myself. Like I'm learning from you right now. This is, this is gold. This is so good. So you talked a lot about how to do that investing of relationship in the people that you want to bring along. And I especially love that, that notice name and nurture. It's probably the preacher in me. Like alliteration is kind of my love language, you know, that's <laughs> always going to get me excited. But, um, talk to me a little bit about with these other, you talked about the wisdom warriors and the challengers. How do you so you've talked about investing in others, but how do you pursue those relationships that are going to invest in you? I can't tell you how many leaders I meet with or who I coach who say, I just, I need somebody. I need a mentor. I need someone to pour into me. And it's true. We do. We all need somebody that is invested in us. Mm -hmm. But for someone who feels like, I don't really know where those relationships are readily available. How have you pursued those? How do you make it worthwhile for this person to invest in you? What are some of the practical things that you might tell someone who says, I am looking for my own challengers, my yeah. own wisdom warriors, the people who are outpacing me, like you said, and, and how do they go about nurturing those relationships that they need? Absolutely. Um, so the first one I'll say is, I'm going to start with the challengers because it is my firm belief that, and, and people may not agree, but this is my firm belief, my conviction. All of us have those people around us 
they just are waiting to be empowered, to be honest with us. Um, a lot of them are probably afraid to share uh, authentically um, because they don't want to hurt you or because they don't want to ruin the relationship. Um, and I have always been amazed when I tell people, like, if you liberate some people around you, um, and it's not generally, I feel like when people just take a moment back and say, I'm looking around and I'm like, man, this person really cares about me. What do you see in me that is detrimental? Um, what do you see? And again, I always do pick, make this caveat. Uh, the only person who should be challenging you is someone whose life you also admire. <laughs> so, you know, if they're not a builder, they can't talk to you about, you know, trying to build something. But, but I think the challenges are there now. When it comes to those wisdom warriors or those outpaced people, it's been my experience to do this and, and at a very practical level. Number one, I am offering to take them somewhere or meet them somewhere. I'm not asking them to come to me. I am inconveniencing myself. I mean, I think the starting point there is humility. Um, and I am, I am asking, can I do coffee? Can I take you to lunch? Um, do you have 20 minutes for me to stop by? There have been pastors who mentored me. There have been business leaders who mentored me that I've said, they said, I am busy. I said, no problem, can I shadow you for a day? And I will talk to you in the car ride from meeting to meeting. I will drive you. Um, I am going to eliminate the excuse because I'm gonna say, um, I am going to inconvenience myself. And so now it's one of two options. Either you just don't want to invest in someone else <laughs> or, or, you know, or maybe there's some other things going on in your world that you just say it's not the right time. But, um, it's not going to be because of my in lack of availability. So that's the first thing I'm doing. I'm finding a way to make the meeting happen. When that meeting happens, I am coming prepared with questions. My biggest frustration at this stage, people who say, I want to grow in leadership, and they don't come with questions. Um, and so uh, a big part of what I'm doing is I'm coming prepared for those people who are pacing, those people who are wisdom, I'm saying, okay, here's some questions I have. And then I'm telling them to tell me, are some of these the right questions? Were there any better questions I could have asked? Um, the last thing, which I think I don't see people do enough, this may be the one thing that, I, again, maybe people do it, but I don't hear people talk about it enough, is I am always following up and letting people see the return on their investment. So I am very adamant about if I meet with uh, Sion, for example, and you say to me, hey, you should really be thinking about this, this, this for your leaders. Well, in two to three weeks, I'm going to send you a picture of the team doing the exercise that you recommended. Or I'm going to do a FaceTime and be like, hey, I just want you to know that uh, that book you recommended, it just came in and the whole staff is about to read it. What that does is it, it lets people know my time wasn't wasted and, and I'm seeing the return on investment in a very tangible way. So I'm really big on some people will give you time, but then if you never show them the return on investment um, in a tangible way, then, then, then it becomes harder and harder to get into their presence. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm inconveniencing myself, takes humility. I'm asking plenty of questions and coming prepared with them, not on the spot. They have bought a couple questions, et cetera. And then I'm also trying to make sure that um, two to three weeks after that, I'm following up to show them the return on their investment so they can know this time wasn't wasted. So good. And what I really hear in that is so much intentionality. Mm -hmm. I mean, just a massive, massive amount of intentionality, which 
takes time. And I notice in a lot of what you've been talking about, that that theme of time keeps coming up again, taking the time to be with people, to invest in people, to nurture relationships, to pursue relationships. And you talked about having the rhythms of life. So talk to me a little bit about what does it look like to make time for these things, especially for the leader who says, yeah, I'm busy, but I want to invest in other people. I want to build these relationships. I want to nurture the relationships that I need mentoring me. What are some of the things that we need to do as leaders to make that time a priority, to set it aside, to protect that time, to fight for it if we have to? What does that look like? So um, a couple practical resources here that have helped me. Um, the first one is a, a heavy read, but it is a valuable one. It's called Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, that book transformed my thinking on just how much time I really needed and how much time I was wasting with shallow work. Um, and what Cal argues in that book as a pretty much his thesis is that most of us spend all of our time in shallow work which takes more time uh, because we're constantly being pulled out of deep work because of emails or because of text messages or because of Instagram or because of social interaction. And if we could ever really tackle deep work, uh, we, would, we would be able to see more fruitfulness and more productivity in less time. And we'd be surprised how much time we have. The other big thing there is he talks about like giving ourselves permission to not inundate our time with stuff that's not valuable to us. Mm-hmm. Like, like, who says we have to respond to all these emails? Like, who makes that yeah. rule? Right? Because that stuff doesn't last. But the book you could write, if you took the three hours you were doing emails, will last forever. And so he gives a lot of thought to that. Um, also, another one is The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, uh, which, honestly, in full transparency, um, I struggled to read to the end. But the part that really changed my life was Keystone Habits. Um, and understanding that, there was a lot more time in my day that I was just, again, not capitalizing on. But um, when you talk about time in particular, now I'll transition to my keystone habits. Here's how I make the time. And I think it's a, doesn't mean everybody has to do it the same way, but, but here's how I do it. I'm always asking myself three questions. Um, where am I most energized? What time am I most energized? And what am I most energized doing? Um, the first one, where am I most energized is, going to seem really weird. So we talk about like making time, making time for me, my car is my secret closet. Okay. I would pull up in my driveway and my wife will testify to this and I'll sit in the car for an hour and a half. Um, in a conversation, I will tell leaders that I am developing the best place to, to get the most out of me is in my car. I think the best in the car I am known to pull up somewhere and sit in the car with them for an hour and just talk. Um, I don't do well in offices. I don't do as well in the office as I do as in a car. So I love car rides and I love sitting in the car. Um, where I write a lot of my books in the car, songs in the car, sermons in the car. Um, what am I most energized? Um, uh, where am I most energized? What time am I most energized? So I actually wake up at 4.30 every morning. Um, and I start my day with prayer, meditation, and some type of mind-opening activity, podcast something that's non-religious or not connected to my work. Like I'm not trying to just, you know, do that, but like radio lab or Tim Ferriss or something that just makes me think or on being or Brene Brown or something like that. Um, And in large part, I'm doing that because um, I'm going to start my day off. Well, but here's what I found. I started waking up at four 30 last year. 
I was done working out and all that stuff by 6.30. Well, everybody was still asleep, which gave yeah. me a massive amount of capacity to knock out tasks like emails and sermon prep and stuff still before the sun came up. And it, it really did open up my world during the day to having more time to invest into the relationships that matter most down to by the time I got home for dinner with my family at six, I had been working since six. Um, and then I was going to sleep earlier, which I was asking myself, well, what am I, where, where am I wasting the most time? I was stand up to one and two in the morning every night watching Netflix. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a lack of time. It was how I was using it. Um, and so again, that's just an example of how I've done it, but that's a keystone habit for me. The keystone habit is wake up at four 30, go to sleep earlier, wake up earlier. And there was a whole bunch of time that I could use that was uninterrupted that made me more productive and gave me more time to do the relational equity that mattered most. That's good. That's so good. Uh, whoo, four 30. So I have to ask you this. What time do you go to bed? 10 30. I sleep six hours. Okay. And I do this Monday through Thursday. So Friday and Saturday, sometimes I do give myself a little grace, but uh, Monday through Thursday, um, I am generally up at four 30, go to sleep, 10 30, wake up at four 30. And then I nap during the day, um, in my car. <laughs> of course, the car is just the place where it all seems to happen for you. I love yeah. it. Yeah, so the staff will know, like, they'll be like, oh, Vern's going out to his car. <laughs> uh-huh. And you know what? Never underestimate the power of a nap. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a nap advocate, so. Yes, it's um, hugely sure. important because we need our rest. You know, I was reading this book recently, and it was uh, basically uh-huh. a, a biography of a number of different presidents. It was actually written by um, one of the White House employees who had been there for, I think, four or five different presidents. Mm-hmm. My Life with the First Ladies is what it was called. And he talked about um, the presidents and their daily routine and habit of taking a nap. And in my mind, I'm like, how are you the president? president of the United States and you have got time every day to take a nap. (laughs) And you know, the reality was because like you talked about, they're up at the crack of dawn every day. They're doing work. They're doing the hard work that needs. Sometimes they're up late into the night doing that. And they're willing to take the time for the things that matter to keep them healthy and thriving. And I think that's the problem sometimes for us as leaders is feeling like there's so much to do. And that's not even the relationships that I should be investing in. There's so much to do that I'm not even taking the time to care for myself because it feels like, oh, that's not valuable or, oh, that's wasted time. But to hear that you're up at 4.30, you're taking a nap, you're doing what needs, you know, it's how do we really honestly steward our time in the way that makes us the most available for the things that matter most, which is the investment in the relationships. And what I'm hearing from you is that you have ordered your entire day around what allows you to be present to invest in relationships and everything else works around that. It has to, it has to, for me, a relationship do three things for me. One, it makes me a learner always. Um, I never assume when I'm going into a conversation, even with the people that I'm investing in, that they are not an expert in something. I expect to learn when I sit with people. Um, got a young guy who just interned with us for the summer. And man, he was green. I'm talking about, we had to teach him how to iron. We had to teach him how to, <laughs> you know, cook. I mean, we ended up building this relationship with him where he became the intern little brother to everybody. Yeah. Um, but when it came down to us going into a specific neighborhood, he had grown up in, um, you know, rough neighborhood in Connecticut. And man, he was the expert, you know? And so we got a chance to sit at his feet 
for an outreach we were doing. He was like, hey, this is how we should approach this. And here's how we should have that conversation with us. And so I'm always looking at it, resources, relationships are a resource to be a learner. The second thing is relationships are always, for me, a catalyst to inspiration. It's only when I'm in relationship with people and I'm in conversation with people and I'm sharing ideas or hearing ideas that I'm getting that energy and that excitement and that inspiration to keep moving forward. And, um, and then it reminds me always of empathy. It keeps me um, understanding that people are real people and, and they have lives mm-hmm. and hearing their stories um, reminds me of why I do what I do, but also why I just these moments matter. And so um, it, it keeps me learning. It keeps me inspired. And it always keeps me empathetic. And to me, if I can get those three things happening in my life at all times, learning, inspiration, and empathy, I am constantly fresh, you know, for every season. Um, yeah. So that's why it's, a, it's just an invaluable resource that cannot be mm-hmm. done away. So good. And in order to invest in the way that you're talking about, not only does it take intentionality, but it takes really being able to prioritize, prioritize Mm -hmm. our time, prioritize our lives. Something that you said in the beginning that I wrote down that really hit me was you, and you might have to bring back the verbiage that you use, but you said, I'd rather do a few things well than, what did did you say? Yeah. I'd rather do a few things great than a lot of things average. A few things great than a lot of things average. How do you determine and figure out what those few things are? You know, in part, it, it, it starts with knowing what you are naturally and innately drawn to. Um, that's, I, that's the language I like to use, right? What am I drawn to? I think if, and, and a lot of us miss this because our lives are just full of busy. Yeah. It's like, you know, we're so, I mean, the task list and the to-do list has us just doing, 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 that we're glazing over what we're really drawn to. So in, in, the first thing for me is what am I, being drawn to, um, and that's a part of the filter. Once I find out what I'm being drawn to, now I need to ask this second question, which is very important. I have to have enough self-awareness to determine, am I being drawn to this because it's what I'm called to do? Or am I being drawn to this because of comparison or competition or something else? And I always have to check that in my own heart. Like, oh, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. Why are we doing it? Because Michael Todd did it, you know? so. <laughs> <laughs> got to be careful not to be competing or comparing. But, mm-hmm. um, but once I have those two conversations with myself and with my heart, like I'm being pulled in this direction. I'm passionate about this. Then I'm filtering, why do I want to do this? And once I find that, I'm leaning into those spaces. Now, I also want to marry that with, again, competency. And, you know, I'm being drawn to this, but do I have the capacity and the competency to execute it? But once I can filter through those conversations, um, yes, everything else works around that. So I am then looking desperately to get everything else to somebody else. And the way I'm doing that is through that notice, name, and nurture. So this happens in every season, I think, for every leader. For me right now, it's happening in our church. So our church has grown and it's come to a point where if our church is to continue to be above board, we need somebody who really cares about the business side of our church. I don't like, I don't like holding people accountable to policies. I really don't care about if you follow the policy. What I care about is the outcome. Did it work? I want to inspire. I want to give a story and a vision cast. I want somebody else who wants to go talk to the bank meeting. I want somebody else to go. And so now that we've reached this point, when you church plant, you you, got to do it all. Now I'm like, okay. Who do I notice that has some of these competencies, skills, passion, and are drawn to this type of thing? 
how can I, you know, name that for them and see how they respond to it? Hey, I see your potential. This is something that I'm seeing in our church. I love to talk more with you about the possibilities of this. And, and nine times out of 10, people are looking at me like, wow, you know, you look out at these people, but you saw that in me, right? So that naming creates the beginning of the relationship. And then I'm nurturing that through, um, generally through exposure, um, generally through education and then empowerment. Um, I'm really trying to figure out, okay, let me expose you to, to who I am and what we do and let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little about how we're going to educate on what we're trying to accomplish. And then I want to empower you by really giving you ownership. And so, um, but, but again, it all starts with what am I drawn to and what am I good at? And then everything else I need to figure out a way to identify those who can take it off my plate. Mm, that's so good. So much gold in there. So as we're wrapping up then, and I feel like you've kind of already given us this, but uh, if you have something new to add, obviously do that, or it may even just be kind of a restating what you've already said. But for the leader who says, you know what, this is resonating with me. What you're saying is so hugely important. And I want to go implement this in my own personal life. I want to implement this in my relationships. I want to implement this in my company, in my business, my nonprofit, my church, you know, whatever it may be. I want to implement this with my team. What are some of the first initial steps? And obviously what you're sharing with us, I mean, this is a, this is a lifetime of learning and of trying and of adjusting and, you know, all these other things for someone who's brand new to this, what would be the first one to three practical steps that you would say, hey, if you want to start putting this stuff into practice and seeing the benefit of, of these relationships uh, in your leadership, here's the first couple things that you would want to consider. What would that be? What would you say to that person? So um, I will start by saying you want to take an audit of your time and energy. Mm. Um, and I use the word audit because, again, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, my wife is an auditor. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting about her job is her job is to go somewhere and just look like, yeah. <laughs> you know, and to ask questions, not try to fix, not try to do, not the first thing she's doing is asking questions and making observations. So I, I want to audit my time and energy. I want to look around and say, what's happening on my team or what's happening in my organization? What's happening with this movement? And where are we investing time right now? And where are we investing energy? Um, and just be honest with yourself and take notes, make observations, and then use that to then assess, right, how to better uh, build space and capacity for relationships. Again, a big thing I'm, I would want you to leave with is knowing um, that there is no more valuable resource in your leadership than building relationships because people will work hard for someone they love mm. every single time. Um, people will invest hard into someone they love. Um, so whether you're looking for wisdom, whether you're looking for someone who outpaces you, whether you're looking for somebody to bring along, at the end of the day, uh, when people trust you and they love you and they think you have their best interests at heart and vice versa, you can always get the best from them and you get the best back. And so you audit that time and energy because most people would say, I don't have the time for it. I would argue once you do audit of time and energy, how much time am I watching Netflix? How much time are we uh, on our phones? How much time are we spending in meetings? How much time are we in transit? You know, all of these different elements. Take the audit. The second thing I'm doing is, um, and then use the audit to create a better and more strategic plan. The, the second thing I'm doing is 
I am deciding strategically to look out for leaders. Um, and, and I try to do that in two ways. One, I try to position myself somewhere differently every month. Um, I was amazed at how many leaders I was missing as a pastor because I wouldn't stand outside. Mm. So I did a month of standing outside and then I could see the parking guy who wasn't just good at putting on a vest, but man, I said, you're an amazing communicator. Like I saw you talk to like 10 people walking up. You just engage strangers immaculately. You probably need to be on stage communicators that come from our parking lot. Wow. That would have never been noticed had I remained inside, right? Yeah. Um, or moving to the children's space and seeing, you know, somebody manage crisis, a parent who was trying to get their kid in a room and them just getting down eye level with a kid. So I'm trying to move around. I'm trying to be somewhere where I can be on the lookout for leaders. And the only way that's possible, number one, on a practical level, I got to move my position every now and then. The other thing about noticing leaders um, and that nurturing piece that we talked about is I am, and, and see, I will appreciate this. It's an uptick thing, but I am not only challenging those leaders, but I'm inviting them. Yes. Um, I, I, I think there's no more better way to build the relationships or resources than by inviting people into your world. Um, we live in a day and time where people are organically skeptical. And I think it is just a refreshing affirmation when people say, hey, I, I just want you to come over and bring your kids and I just want to get to know you. Um, and no, for no reason, just to get to know you. And I believe that those relationships become some of the greatest resources to movements. M- much of what we've seen, people who, I mean, would do anything for our family, for the movement, um, both close and from, far, from, from afar, are because of the relationships that we um, we built. So that's that's what I would say our first steps. Take audit of time and energy. Notice leaders, make sure you have to move around and invest through invitation. Those would be the three things I would say. So good. There's a whole other book in here. <laughs> um, so good. Well, Vernon, I just want to say uh, thank you. And honestly, thank, thank not only for the time, but for just so much wisdom. I mean, I feel like we could sit here and keep talking for hours and you would just keep pouring out gold. I've been taking notes the whole time and there's so much that's even challenging me right now in what you said. And so um, just on behalf of everyone that's listening, just thank you for the time and thank you for sharing with us. Well, thank you guys. I I mean, you know, I am excited about uh, just the podcast. Everybody listen to all of them. There's some amazing guests and thank you, Sian, for having me and uh, any way I can ever serve. You let me know. It was an honor. Everybody that's listening, I just want to thank you for taking time to pull up a seat and be with us today. I want to encourage you uh, to put all of this into practice. I hope you heard something that resonated with you today. Definitely want to encourage you to go to Amazon and pick up Vernon's book. And uh, until next time, I look forward to seeing you right back here again at the table. Thanks for listening to the Table Leadership Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the resources that were discussed at the table today and to connect with today's guest. Remember to subscribe to The Table Podcast and follow along on social media at The Table Leadership. Visit thetableleadership.com to learn more about current courses and coaching opportunities. And finally, you can connect with me, your host, at cionedgerton.com or on social media at cionedgerton. I look forward to the next time that you pull up a seat at The Table.